Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my best friend and fill-in co-host, but definitely not a fill-in. He's a regular in my book, in my heart, Aaron. Hey, man, it's good to have you back again for this week's episode. Thank you. I've made it four weeks and not been fired yet, so (laughs) I feel good, (laughs) feeling strong. So far, your performance is good. We're hitting the 90-day mark. Is this what this is? Because we're like a third of the way through the series. Or exactly. season. So <laughs> at your 90-day evaluation, I think we're going to keep you on payroll for a little bit. <laughs> Am I getting insurance yet? <laughs> <laughs> you would need it. Infected health insurance? You'd That's need what it I in need. this world. Definitely get some infected health insurance. Well, we are in the, the middle of the series officially, the, or the season. It's nine episodes. We're in episode four, titled Please Hold to My Hand, which is such a goofy title. I didn't want to mess it up. I kept saying it in my head, and hopefully I wasn't going to mess it up because I was like, please to hold to my to hand. You know, too many twos in there, it feels like. But yeah, episode four, this one was in light of the last episode. We had a similar thing happen. We had expansion of a character, or at least new characters being introduced, familiar stuff going on. But I think the difference for me, Aaron, was that this felt like a proper way to use new characters to expand the world of The Last of Us and the world that Joel and Ellie are experiencing in a really, really good way. This is a great episode. Yeah, I agree. And I still am, I guess I'm a little more supportive of the new characters the second time around. It's less jolting because I'm sure as we go through this, we'll talk about some of the changes. And this one features a strong change, central change here uh, to what is going on. It took me by surprise that first time I watched it. And so I was a little slow to come around to it. But knowing what I know now, I really did enjoy the buildup a lot better. There's pros and cons to watching through a series for the very first time versus rewatching it for the second time. And this time I have the benefit of understanding where a character like Melanie is not Melanie. That's actress's name, Melanie Linsky, (laughs) a character like Kathleen. I know what the ultimate arc is going to be for this character. And so when I'm watching those early introductory beats for someone like her, it's a lot more meaningful to me because I can see where the pieces are going, like what they're building to. It just worked uh, a lot better. So yeah, I really enjoy this episode. And I think once again, where the show succeeds the most overall is the fact that it has nailed the Joel and Ellie relationship. That is what is so central to this entire story. And they kill it all the time over and over and over. I could watch just the two of them on this road trip and nothing else could happen. And I think I would still be pretty darn satisfied. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that at all. As we get into this episode, it's the second episode that is not a cold open. I think it opens right with the, with the credits. Boo. I know you don't like that. You like cold opens, but no, we're, we're in a bathroom and Ellie's playing with a gun. And I think that's a smart thing you're doing, but it's not out of the realm of possibility for her. She's excited. She's got this gun 
I am impressed that she doesn't have the clip in it. I think that's a really solid point to know that she's not just being stupid with gunplay, that she is at least halfway smart with this. But she's looking at herself in the mirror. I almost expected her to do a Clint Eastwood reference, but she wouldn't know Clint Eastwood. So that would be out of character for her. Be funny to me, but I'm glad it wasn't in there. It would have. Her fascination with guns continues to worry me. We (laughs) talked about this last episode where you start to see the, well, actually we've seen it since the very beginning of like violence being something that is intriguing to her in a, in a dark way. This is the same when she's playing with that gun. It's not simply just someone trying to learn how to use it on a technical level. There is an enjoyment. There is a glee in her face as she is playing with this real weapon and she sniffs it patrick <laughs> I don't know what that is she smells it <laughs> i you know like there, i get smelling it after you fire it because there's like that gunpowder residue smell but like she didn't fire it and i mean at one point she's like got the bullet like right up to her eye and her nose and like she it's it's creepy to be honest i'm a little concerned yeah i don't know what to expect from her Uh, at least in the near future. I know what to expect from her in the next few minutes. And it's probably the highlight of the show for me. So (laughs) she goes outside the bathroom, Joel siphoning gas and trying to explain to Ellie, but failing. And it's such a great little laughing moment because he's like, It's a siphon. It's when liquid travels against gravity because pressure. You don't know. I know it works. (laughs) (laughs) And then, Aaron, she breaks out probably the best callback to the video game ever, the dad jokes, volume two of this book that she has. And Joel's not amused. Joel is absolutely like his facial expressions, the annoyed reactions that you're seeing from his face. Like he looks legitimately disgusted. Like, what are you doing? I have to just go ahead and include these jokes in the recording. So you've got Ellie starting out by saying, it doesn't matter how much you push the envelope. It'll still be stationary. <laughs> she goes, What did the mermaid wear to her math class? An allergy bra. <laughs> and then my favorite of the scene. I stayed up all night no. wondering where the sun went. And then it dawned on me. Feel free to wait in the truck. <sighs> <laughs> and it's not the joke that makes it. It's Joel's reaction. I couldn't stop laughing. This was so, so funny. It's amazing in the game. It's amazing here. In the video games, you actually are rewarded for spending time just idling and walking around and not rushing through a zone to get to the next combat. And I love that as a game design element. And that's how you get to unveil all of the different puns. If you just move from point A to point B, you actually missed quite a few of them in the game. But yeah, I, I think that the representation of that here is so well done. And I, like you, I guess we just succumb to dad jokes because I mean, I thought that they were all hilarious. I mean, every single one is hilarious to me. And I like how when she's ending this after she's about, when she's walking away, after he tells her to leave, she's like, you can't escape Will Livingston. He'll be back. There's nothing you can do to stop him. (laughs) And that's the author of the pun book. And it's just the playfulness and the banter. And, you know, there's a distinct difference that you can feel building through these episodes. There's banter throughout each one at different points. 
but it becomes a little bit tolerated longer each time from Joel. And you can tell all the way up till probably the end of this, which is the final moment in this episode that is kind of, I think, the transition point, if you will, into a different relationship. And up until that point, you just see him slowly being more accepting of it, even though he's resisting. And he's even saying some mean stuff every once in a while still. You can tell his whole heart is not in that anymore. And he's just trying to keep up a face. Yeah. More so than it being his genuine, like, gruff self. He It, it is definitely, his armor is coming down. And it's just, it's lovely to watch it happen slowly over these episodes. Yeah, and there's two moments here that I want to point out as they come up that sort of connect that particular point that you're making. And it's really beautiful. I also like the fact that these puns, these dad jokes are not overly done throughout the episode. They're done at just the right time for laughs, for a moment of levity, and they're done in a way that shows that exact thing. So I think that it's a smart thing to include, not just as a nostalgic piece or something to call back to, although that's definitely here, but it's with purpose. I think we said that before, that including things with purpose makes something better. We're not getting into that sort of oh yeah, here's the Millennium Falcon from you know The Force Awakens. We're not sort of you know getting that intertextuality that, that lives in a lot of these reboots or IPs that are going back to the well. The Last of Us succeeds as a series because it doesn't do that for that purpose. It does it for a different purpose that pushes the story along. So it's, it's happening and it's on point here. And then they get on the road. Ellie finds a new cassette tape. It's Hank Williams. And I think this is the song in the game too. I want to say that that's the one that that he pops in that we hear while they're driving on the road. I don't recall, but I did want to chime in here because this is where the weird title comes from. And so I wanted to point this out for anybody who doesn't understand it. And it's funny, Patrick, because I was searching this up for prep of this episode, and there's plenty of reputable websites who do recaps and who list episodes of TV shows that I've just literally called this Please Hold My Hand as if they expected it to be a typo. It is not a typo. The main chorus of this song is called Alone and Forsaken, and it is Alone and Forsaken by Fate and by Man. Oh Lord, if you hear me, please hold to my hand. Oh, please understand. Okay. Beautiful, completely fitting to their situation, yep. and it makes sense why that extra word is in there. But if you just hear it or just look at it in a vacuum and don't don't make the association to the lyrics of the song, it doesn't seem like it works. But uh, it made a lot more sense this way, and I liked it a lot. That's better. great, yeah. That was something I did not pick up on, so thanks for that little, little nugget there for us. She also finds Bill's quote-unquote literature, literature, that is apparently light on the reading, but has some interesting pictures. This was great because this was straight out of the game where she's like, so long, dude. And she throws the magazine out the window. Totally happens in the game. That is the only instance where we understand that Bill is actually gay. Like we have no inkling of his sexual orientation until that moment in the game. That's sort of a throwaway moment, but they included that here. Yeah, definitely. And I, I like that we get these moments from the game that are replicated perfectly. Some things are easy to do like that, and this one really is. The awkwardness of the reading of this and, and like making comments about it to Joel and how he is clearly starting to take on that parental persona and he is uncomfortable. Yeah. For Fourth of July, we were playing some board games and my ex-wife, her husband, 
both of our groups of kids were all there. And we were playing this name, game called Ransom Notes. And essentially, you take these magnets, you have a whole bunch of like old, ma it's like magnetic poetry, if you know what that was. So it's like tons and tons of random words. You take a big chunk of them, and then there's a prompt, and you all make an answer to the prompt on your little magnetic piece of thing, pad, and then somebody judges them. My ex gets the thing and reads the prompt and she just starts dying before she even, she can't even read it yet. She's like, she's about to just, she's blushing and she's like, this is terrible. This is a terrible idea because it's a very, it's got some R-rated stuff. <laughs> and, and we're all like, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's fine. They're adults now. Our kids are adults. They're all 18 or over. It's fine. And she reads the prompt and it was, what would you say as a husband to convince your wife to have a threesome was the prompt. <laughs> and so our kids are, they start dying laughing. Right. And I'm, I'm dead. And I spend like the next 10 minutes of this game, literally with my head down on the table, just embarrassed. And then when we read out the answers and realized that multiple of these answers came from our 18, 19 and 20 year old kids, it was worse, Patrick. And, and so I, <laughs> In this moment, when I was rewatching the episode and feeling Joel go through that, I was like, man, I get it. This is when you know you are starting to be a dad again, because otherwise this wouldn't bother you, but it bothers you because it's your kid. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, she's your kid <laughs> yes. now. And so I just, I really related yeah. to that. That's awesomely embarrassing. <laughs> Make sure I complete my thought there. So the first kind of deviation from the game happens here. They go camping. They camp out in the woods for the night. They uh, they find some Chef Boyardee. Joel brings, he packs some. And uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, Ellie who makes a great comment, like, I love this chef. He's great. <laughs> like, she doesn't know that it's just canned ravioli and that kind of stuff. And then later, Ellie breaks out her pun book again. And I love, love, love the setup here. Because she thinks she's going to get Joel. And she's like, Joel, can I ask you a serious question? He's like, what? And they're laying down and... <laughs> I use this joke all the time. In fact, I think this is where I got the joke. This is like the staple pun that I use. She goes, <laughs> Why did the scarecrow get an award? And then he answers, Because he was outstanding in his field. <laughs> you dick. It's so terrible when they know the hook to yeah. your joke. It's just, it's the worst feeling ever. Well, in my defense, when I tell that joke, one, nobody gets it. And two, I do a little add on there. I said, you know what? When I met that scarecrow, I also found out that he was a farmer. <laughs> and they say, what do you mean? I said, hey, it's in his jeans. It's a great joke. It's a solid one. You know, if I'm going to introduce myself as a dad joker, that's the one I go with. That scene finishes off with Ellie really trying to get some reassurance that no one's going to find them in the woods. They're like, hey, this... It's ironic because the place that you don't want to be in like real life, like Blair Witch Project life, is the place that actually feels the safest because it's not where the infected live. They live in the cities. It's not where you'd find uh, ravagers because there's nothing out here to ravage. And so ironically, the woods are the safest place, according to Joel. And he tells her, you're good. And I love the way this scene ends. He reassures her, it's all good. Let's just go to sleep. And then the camera pans later, she's sleeping, and then it comes up, and you see Joel with his rifle just looking out. And it's that dad that's coming out. This is that little bit of growth of him saying, I got to keep a lookout for her because she's cargo, but I kind of care about her. And that little glimpse gives us a moment where we're like, okay, all right, Joel, the walls are coming down a little bit. 
Yeah, great point. And also an interesting juxtaposition against the final moment in this episode, also with Joel and Ellie sleeping and how that goes down comparatively and how there is a different type of calm in him in that time that causes him to be off his guard more so than he was in this moment. It's really interesting how that plays out. I also love here that Joel is telling her about camping and Ellie asks if people might rob them and Joel responds, oh, they'll have way more in mind than that. Big time foreshadowing for some things that are going to happen later in this series. And then another great comment. Actually smells kind of good. Well, that would be Frank's then. (laughs) I love that. Again, also kind of like with the bill nod, but like it makes sense. Um, It's just a subtle way to bring those characters back up, but that seems exactly right. Like he's kind of, yeah, well, you know, but Frank was the one that cared about yes. things and would have had a, a, a sleeping bag in good condition and, and wanted it to, to have a he nice had fabric soft, softener when that he washed his sleeping bag. I'm sure he, he was did, like, I yes. want mine to smell like guns because <laughs> everything should smell like guns. Probably right? so. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so they go to sleep. It's the next day. They are on their way to Kansas City, hoping that everything is up to date there, which it's not because it's the apocalypse and they can't get through all the debris that they see. So they're trying to go through. And after scouting around, Joel says, nope, we're just going to go through the city. We're going to catch the on-ramp. All good. No, it's not, Joel. It's not all good. And this is where we get to a moment in the game that's very familiar. They're driving through. It's not Kansas City. I don't, I think it's Pittsburgh, right? Oh, it's Pittsburgh. Yeah, we so the reason for the change makes perfect sense, though. They were talking about this on their podcast officially uh, after this episode and how they made the change. They're going west like they're they're traveling to Montana or Wyoming or wherever it is. You know, in general, Pittsburgh is not like on the way from the Boston QZ like it's south. I mean, that would it's I guess you could go there, but it just doesn't really make much sense to show the story progressing across the states to get to a point and not have them stop somewhere that makes more narrative like sense. And so they switch it to Kansas City. And I, I like it. I think it works really well. Uh, also, because you kind of got a different vibe of people that, that live in Kansas City than maybe that live in Pittsburgh. It's a little more. Well, it's a lot more Midwestern. <laughs> Because it's Midwestern and Pittsburgh isn't. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, there's not a lot of movement from Boston to Pittsburgh in terms of geography. And we've talked a little bit about how we want to get away from Boston. We want the journey to traverse, to feel like there is movement. And you're exactly right. Getting us to Kansas City, especially when we're almost halfway through the season, we got to get to Wyoming. There's enough of <laughs> there's enough geography to pass through. <laughs> If Kansas City is like the episode four mark. And of course they could, we could go backwards. We can go and do flashbacks and things like that as they've shown us, but this is good. I mean, it, it literally moves the story forward in a geographic way that makes a lot of sense. Before they get there, I, I wanted to point out that they have this really interesting conversation in the truck where Ellie's asking about Joel's brother. And we're kind of asking the same question. You're like, what happened to Tommy? And she makes a snarky comment. He's like, yeah, it's a long story. She's like, we got 22 hours. Is it longer than that? So he basically gives her the the rundown that after the outbreak, he and Tommy really formed a faction of people. And that's where they met Tess to sort of 
take on this. Like Tommy had this sort of patriotic sense. And I don't mean patriotic in American, but just like the sense of duty and honor and things like he wanted to be a part of something bigger. And then then Marlene got a hold of him and that's when he hooked up with the Fireflies. But Joel also says that he broke that away too and now he's back on his own again. So that's why they're going to Wyoming because at this point now it gets us kind of caught up with the story of Joel and Tommy. Like he's sort of been looking for him. It's like once he broke free of the Fireflies, being on his own kind of makes him unknown. Like, where is he? He doesn't have, there's no place to connect with him besides that tower and the radio and stuff like that. And even that isn't directly connected to him. It's with Bill and Frank. So that was really good exposition to help us as an audience be able to say, ah, okay. And that gives Ellie pause to say, so is this why you're doing this? Because she says, if you don't think there's hope for the world, what's the point of going on? And he responds, the point is family. And he's clear to point out at this point, Aaron, that she's still cargo. Like he has no qualms about saying that you're cargo. He's family, you're cargo. Let's just get that distinction out of the way. That was so painful. This was the one moment where he's going back and forth. He's going through this conversion process, if you will, of becoming softer. And when you get all that banter and the great moments of them traveling, and then he still comes back to this, the way he says it, it stings, dude. It is like mean and just cold the way he says. And again, I think it's because he's trying to convince himself at this point. He is trying to force himself to believe that. I think she knows that because her response to me doesn't feel like she takes it as personal as she has in the past, almost as if she realizes what is happening. It's kind of like a eye roll. Like, yeah, okay, I get it. You've got to say this instead of, her seeming to be genuinely destroyed by that comment in the way that I, I kind of was, yeah. honestly. It's an interesting change that mm-hmm, I see. For sure. So they get to Kansas City. They decide to go through the, through the city. Ellie spots a QZ checkpoint, but there's no Fedra, which is kind of sketchy to her. And then they see a guy asking for help, but Joel knows it's a trap. I know it's a trap because I've played the game. This plays out exactly the way it does in the game, where he's he rams into the dude and then they get ambushed by all this gunfire. This is the point in this episode where I die. Like, I would survive the truck crash, but I would freak out by trying to be quiet. Because I've done this like eight times. I remember counting my first time through this game. I was like, I had to, I had to die eight times to get through this whole sequence of all this uh, stuff going on. Because you got people yelling. I actually really liked the scene and it's comparison to the game because you hear that ambient voice in the background saying, what the F's going on? You got people yelling and it's scary. <laughs> and I would absolutely die at this point. Even if I knew how to fire a gun, I would aim completely at someone else or at the wall and probably shoot myself. So this is the point in this episode where Patch dies. <laughs> Not at the hands of infected, but at the hands of these kind of crazy ravagers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love how game accurate all of this is. It just takes me back. It is a very unexpected moment in the game. It kind of one of those, like you're rolling along in the truck, having a conversation, and then it just sort of happens. And I like that Joel is, well, we'll hold on to why Joel knows what was going on. But the part about this episode that really was tough is this kid, Brian, begging for his life. It really destroyed me this time. Just the way you can tell he's younger. He's like, we can be friends. And he is talking. Like he doesn't know what to do. He even says verbally, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. He is completely distressed. He is not wanting to die. 
unlike so many people in these stories and in games that are just mindlessly enraged and it's like, I will fight to the death. This kid is like, I don't want that to happen. I am. I don't want to be in this situation. And it was tough, man. He says, you know, get me to my mom, who we kind of can figure that out as things progress. And, and then it is just probably the most brutal single killing, I think, in the entire show because of that, because it's someone who is asking not to die. And it's not a killing out of immediate self-defense either. It is a killing out of the fear of being discovered and what leaving this person alive could result right. in. So Joel and Ellie don't have to kill this kid. They could leave him there. They could gag him and walk away, and he probably would die anyway, possibly, but it's a different side of Joel that we see here. Like it gives him a character trait that makes him more akin to like an anti-hero right. or someone that you're not always going to agree with and root for in the same way as you would like a perfectly good human being. A lot of things in this episode bring that part of him and his past out. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I noticed in this, this is the first time that Ellie cries. Like I have not seen her cry, which is really interesting because you pointed out in the first episode, the comparison between her and Sarah and their reaction to Joel, where Sarah's, they're both shocked, but Sarah's is one of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my dad's doing this. And Ellie's like, wow, you know, like she's in awe of this. Interestingly, she's not even seeing what's happening and you can hear, you can see her tears crying, you know, just crying. And so there's definitely some mixed emotions from her of like not really being able to process this in a healthy way, because I think she feels like we do like, don't kill this kid. He doesn't deserve it. He's just doing his job, you know, whatever's going through her head. But Joel sees something greater that he has to do that anti-hero approach of like, we cannot leave him here because we can't risk being caught. We can't risk this, which is why it makes sense that he didn't shoot him, that he stabbed him because he didn't want to call attention to what was going on there. So that scene ends and then they go through the laundromat and make it to the street. They see several armored cars. I think in the game, Aaron, this is where that crazy armored car just continues to patrol and you have to, is that, is that the scene or is that later? Yeah, you have to get through the whole city secluded however you end up doing it with some other characters that we meet right. in this episode later yeah. on and ultimately yeah you're trying to like not get <laughs> mowed down by a gatling gun on top or a big machine gun on top that of thing is so unfair in the game to, like i didn't realize until getting getting killed several times like oh you can't actually blow this thing up i tried to throw like molotov cocktails no. at it or try to kill the guy like yeah. no you have to you it's have invincible. to you have to hide and get away from this so note to self yeah second time through i was like i know what to do now i know what to do but yeah that's that's how pittsburgh is played in game gotcha. format yeah and then um, we move to the Fedra detention, and this is where we meet Kathleen, as you mentioned earlier, a new character who's interrogating an old man looking for Henry. And I recognize that name. I'm like, all right. And she's trying to get information about her brother, whoever her brother is. We don't know at this point. I remember talking to you about her performance, uh, Kathleen, uh, or that's her character name. See, I messed it up too. Mel Melanie, it's Melanie, Melanie Linsky. Linsky plays his character. And the only word that I could use to describe her performance is chilling because it feels so calculated. Like she, she's not like a serial killer looking like she's just like, you know, Mr. And she's not like that. She feels unassuming when it comes to her talking to the doctor. Like she's giving rational explanation. She's not yelling. She's very, very calm. 
And at the same time, when she puts the gun to his head, you're like, she can do anything. At first, I'm going to say this and sound sexist, but at first I couldn't believe that someone like her would be leading this group of people. But we find out later why that is. And the way that she leads these people really puts her authority on full display. It's a lot like Marlene in that she has established herself as the alpha, either through force or through trust. She has people around her that trust her, that I want to say do her bidding, but they're not like bowing down towards her. So clearly she's got something that they trust, something that they believe in. And I think that's really, really coming out in this interrogation with the doctor because you know, you don't know who she is and you're like, why is this lady <laughs> yelling at this guy? And then we see throughout the rest of the episode, just the kind of authority that she actually has. Agreed. I was a little bit uncertain about it first time through. Then I would say this time it really works. I think it fits again, Midwestern vibe to it. You kind of really start to understand what this is. This is people in Kansas City who were neighbors and who lived close by to each other. Many of them knew one another. And as the story is kind of being told to us, Fedra comes in and starts rounding people up. And essentially they have to rat on their neighbors in order to save themselves is what took place multiple times in this community. And so it, it was a situation where people were having to prioritize saving their own loved ones at the cost of maybe giving someone else's loved ones up for Fedra or whatever else was going on. And so I think the way that she is portrayed is chilling is great, but it's calculated and it's chilling when she has to be. And she has that not really softness to her, but but it is more of a gentleness than you would normally see in something like a, a rebel yeah. leader. But I think that there's a great mixture in this character of smarts and how she could truly lead people and bring them together to survive in this situation. But when it absolutely comes down to being able to do the hard thing to prove a point from violence, she, she can, can do it. What I think is what makes this so little jarring is the fact that she doesn't look physically like someone who would have that kind of persona. You would expect it to be Perry, her right Dude. hand. Man. That, yeah. That's the guy because he looks like a special forces soldier. Also, by the way, played by Jeffrey Pierce, who was Tommy in the video. The games. voice, the voice is so it. It gives it away. If you, yeah, the epic beard makes it better too. I think he does. Yeah. It. Yeah, he looks phenomenal. I'm almost sad that he I didn't get to see him look like that. Oh, yes. Last. I love that yeah. character. But again, it, it's a great juxtaposition of you see him and you're like, oh, that dude's like an army ranger, but he is just supporting her. And, and if someone like that has faith and wants to put her in the leadership position, then it's easy for people to yeah. follow. That. And there's a little bit of an obsession here because I noticed this time around that she seems hell bent on wanting to blame everything on Henry, like this guy, Henry, that we haven't met yet. And when they find out that this kid was killed, this kid, Brian, she blames, she said, it's probably Henry. He probably did it. Now, I'm not saying that she's narrow minded. I think that a lot has happened here and what she's interrogating the doctor about Henry's the same way. And so it makes a lot of sense for her to be like, look, I've got motivation to get him. And so she ends that scene by saying, find every collaborator and kill them all. And to see them scatter really shows the level of authority that she has and the trust that she's built, even 
even with Perry, you know, her right hand man who stays with her holding that gun. But it's just a it's a great visual dichotomy between the two. And I think that's what makes her impressive is that she knows how to handle a situation. And it's exactly what you said. When she finds out that the kid can't use a doctor, she gets rid of the doctor. So meanwhile, Joel and Ellie are hiding and they're seeing all these people who are hunting for these collaborators. Ellie spots a tall building about four blocks away and they're going to wait for the activity to die down. This is a really nice scene between the two of them, similar to the scene in Boston when Tess is going to look for a way to the state capitol. They're having this sort of awkward conversation. They're not opening up. And they both are asking if, are you all right? Are you okay? Joel feels bad that Ellie had to shoot the guy. He says, When you're just a kid, you shouldn't know what it means to... Like, he just kind of cuts that off here. And this is that expansion of his heart a little bit of like, oh, like he feel you could see that he feels bad. He wants to communicate it, but there's so much probably like piled on emotionally that he's like, I don't know if I should say this. I don't know how to say this. And then this is when Ellie says it wasn't her first time to kill. I think this is sort of a, like, I don't know, you call it like a today you'll become a man type moment, a bar mitzvah. <laughs> it's not Jewish, but this moment where Joel puts trust in Ellie's hands, literally with the gun. He starts showing her how to use the gun. It's basically affirmation. It's like, I trust you. You've got my back because you showed me earlier when you took that guy out. I'm giving a little bit of myself to you, of this control that I've had to have to you. And they finish that scene by saying, we'll get through this. And it's, I think it's probably my favorite scene of the episode because it does so much to expand them as a, as a partnership. And it changes them a little bit more for the better. Yeah. I think so, too. And it's just so revealing. We've been waiting for this for four episodes for her to get her gun the real way. She already has one, which is intriguing because now she can dual wield, I guess. But this one becomes naturally. It's heart wrenching the way he's kind of stumbling around things with his words, but ultimately apologizes for having to kill Brian while she was nearby because he knew how it made her feel. And he cared about her feelings. Yeah. And when he says to her, you know, you shouldn't have to see these things as a kid. And she's like, but it gets better. Right. And he's like, no, or easier or something. And he's like, no, it doesn't actually ever get easier, but you still shouldn't have to. It, it is really tremendous pacing the way that the show is able to take us from banter and levity and then action and very serious stakes. And then something like this, where we are very dramatically bought into this relationship as it's developing. Yeah. And something that came to mind for me after watching this, it was a conversation I had to actually today with someone about the fact that we asked the question, is this as good as it gets when it comes to like life? You know, if things are struggling or whatever. And in that conversation, we were talking about the fact that sometimes seasons of our lives last years when we talk about it's a season it's just a season and i think it's to help us sort of cope with the fact that it will end at some point but what if that season is 10 years what if it's 50 years what if that se- is it a season at that point or is it your life we kind of finished that conversation by admitting that 
when things aren't working out the way you want, or when you have sort of these regrets that you look back on and say, man, I miss this, or I can't do this anymore, either because I'm old or because I live somewhere else and I can't go to this place. Being able to admit with maturity that life isn't as good as it maybe was in the past, and that that's okay, that you make the most of the moments, I think a little bit of that is sort of bleeding in here. Now, I don't think that that's the writer's intent. I don't think that we're meant to think, oh, Joel's like, yeah, I just got to make the best of it. I don't think that's the intent at all. But I think Joel has accepted the fact that the hardness of life is what it is, but Ellie is allowing him to open up just a little bit more and find a little bit of beauty somewhere, even though 95% of his life is chaos. 95% of this world is darkness. She is that piece of hope because he's finding that maybe she's not just cargo. Maybe she is something a little bit more. And I think that's where that scene leaves us is going, man, yes, she is more than that. And life is more than just Fedra and infected, <laughs> even though it doesn't feel that way because it pretty much is at this point. <laughs> and we see that because Kathleen is in the meantime, finding no luck finding anyone, but Perry does. He, he says, I got to show you something. And they go to a building and go to the top floor, to the attic of this floor, which is, I mean, how do you find this place? This is just good hunting. Uh, they find old cans of food. They find these superhero drawings and sleeping bags. This is where we hear about Sam. So now we've got Henry and Sam, and you and I know who these people are. <laughs> and we get a moment with them at the end of the episode, but we know more about their story, and we get more of that in the next episode. And then they go to another room at the bottom. It's like a storeroom where the floor has been demolished and then it starts moving. And I'm like, what is that? I forgot about this moment, Aaron. I forgot. Oh, like, really? Why would I forget about this moment? Because this is really, really bad. <laughs> and she tells Perry, seal the building for now. And we'll deal with that later. <laughs> That's going to deal with you later. Okay. <laughs> it's going to, I have no doubt that you guys are not going to be able to deal with whatever's under the floor. This is, I will admit, one of my unfortunate bummers about this series. There is a specific gameplay section in Pittsburgh that is incredibly memorable, and I hate it when I actually have to play it. But it's memorable because of a certain type of infected enemy that you come upon for the first time, and you have to get away from it. It's not replicated in the series at all. This is a nod to that, in a way. Because what is probably coming out of that ground, if it ever is able to come out of that ground, is going to be very similar to what we have had to experience before yeah. in Pittsburgh. And I get why they couldn't do it, because it's it's literally just basically running through the basement of a building, hiding from infected, killing them, and moving forward. But I thought that at least hinting towards that was really good. Uh, and it's pretty terrifying. Just the simplicity of watching the ground shake like that a couple of times and having it look like it's on the verge of just bursting open. And you can see it in Perry's face. Like he is terrified. He's like, we need to deal with this now. And of course, like you said before, she has hit full blind rage mode and she doesn't care. She's like, just close out the building. I got to worry about this random dude and his kid instead because they're way more scary than what's under that whole <laughs> dummy wrong 
Cheeky blinders is more like it. Or peaky blinders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's night next uh, in, in the episode, and this is where we sort of finish the episode off. Joel and Ellie, they break into a small business warehouse of some kind. I don't know what it is, actually. It's like an office building. And they head to the top of the building, potentially 45 flights of stairs, which makes me tired just thinking about that, watching them like traverse with equipment on their back. And Joel is definitely not a spring chicken, <laughs> as we've seen. They find a spot, I think, just maybe it's on 45 or it's it's way up there. And I, I love the strategy here. You know, you go up enough flights of stairs, you're probably not going to have infected or some of these crazy people, townspeople coming after you because they're not going to go that far up. So it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, they find a room 33 floors later on the way up. Ellie asks Joel if he's ever killed innocent people, to which he doesn't answer. Interesting. And then um, they find that room. They find, I guess it's the uh, the couch cushions, so it's nice, soft stuff for them. And Joel takes broken glass and puts it all over the floor as an alarm. Very, very much an Ethan Hunt move. Very, I thought about like, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, you've seen Mission Impossible. You know what's up, Joel. You know, <laughs> go to the go to the safe house. You know, and then um, Joel asks Ellie as they're laying down about the first time she had to kill someone, and then she kind of returns a favor. She goes, "I don't want to talk about it," and I love it here that he says it's cool you don't have to do that that was enough for me to say man joel you've just asked her a question and the way that you responded to her saying i don't want to talk about it is a fantastic parent response because you're not out to get the answers you just want her to know that you care and that you're interested and that you want to know a little bit more about her because you do care about how that affects her and that if she's going to tell you, she's going to do it in her time, but you've at least opened that door. And I thought that was great. Yes, this is a beautiful, beautiful moment for the two of them. I think it's also kind of funny where I said, just opposed against the sleeping scene at the beginning of this episode. And here she asks him about the glass. She says, the reason I asked if you'd hear the glass is because I noticed you don't hear so well from your right side incredible, incredible line of dialogue because it tells you that Ellie has been paying attention and that is a, a level of observation that just doesn't come naturally. Like you, you really got to be locked into caring and watching what someone is doing and she has. And I thought that, again, he is calmed. He is relaxed it's after this pun, the, the wonderful, wonderful diarrhea pun. Did you know diarrhea is hereditary? What? Yeah. It runs in your genes. He starts laughing, and he's yeah. just like, that is so GD stupid. Yeah. And he's like giggling. And then he stop, he's still laughing, and he says, I didn't laugh. And then he starts <laughs> laughing again, and he's like, geez, I'm losing it. And, and he is. He's losing it. He's losing control because he is letting his yeah. guard down, and he is letting her in. And what happens it results in him not being able to protect yeah. her. Beautiful problem that comes with this whole relationship and yeah. series. It's just so brilliantly done, yeah. I think. And I, that's what I was going to point out is these two scenes, how they bookend each other to where the guy who is guarding cargo, but he is resting next to the girl. It's irony at its finest. And we ask ourselves the question, in what scene is Joel protecting Ellie 
And it would be hard to say which one. I mean, yes, the obvious answer is in the woods, but knowing how he feels about her and letting his guard down, his presence, I think, is protecting her. The fact that he is the one closest to the door and closest to the glass, that she's behind him at that point. It's it's just really, really cool to see how those two scenes sort of are dichotomy of each other. And and I think that's by design from the writing standpoint that his vulnerability becomes his demise. And at the same time, we cheer for that because it's what we want. We want Joel to not think of her as cargo, but to think of her as Ellie, the one that could open up that dark spot in his heart and put some light in there. Unfortunately, for the moment, <laughs> he is not awakened by the light of Ellie, but by <laughs> guns in his face. These are where two people uh, show up that we assume are Henry and Sam. And we can confirm that. I mean, it's not like a big secret because they are in the next episode, but they're holding guns to the faces of both Ellie and Joel. And for the moment, we hope that Ellie and Joel keep their faces, that they're not blown off. <laughs> so knowing that this uh, series is like another five episodes. Be a pretty, be really, <laughs> be an all time yeah, twist. The rest of the season is just Sam and Henry on their journey. <laughs> be, interesting. be interesting. Fortunately for us, that's not the case, as we'll just kind of mildly spoil the next episode, saying that that's not what happens. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Coming up next, we have episode five, the actual midway point entitled Endure and Survive. And when I saw this title, I was like, we better get some combat. We better get some, like, freaking combat. Specifically infected yeah. combat is yeah. what you're getting at, not just... Yeah, I don't, I don't need dudes throwing guns at me or shooting at me or shooting at Joel and Ellie. I need some infected, you know, running at me and like popping their heads up and scaring the poo out of me. You know? So let's hope for that. <laughs> Thank you everyone for tuning in and joining this conversation. I'm Patch, he's Aaron, and we are out of here. <laughs>